0: Welcome to Linworth Road Church helping people become fully alive, fully mature, and fully on mission visit linworthroadchurch.com to learn more thank you brian that's that's uh, man God bless him for connecting and loving middle school students that's that's fantastic hey, if you're one of our guests this morning we've been uh, journeying through the book of First Corinthians in an effort to understand how to grow as a follower of Christ and We are in chapter 11 this morning, and the next three or four chapters, Paul turns a corner and begins to address how the church should conduct itself when it gathers. And and I realized this morning that, you know, just in living life with you and walking through life with you, that uh, a lot of you are suffering through some pretty significant things right now, and this passage may feel like it's... Irrelevant or has little bearing, and as you'll see in a moment, it's it's hard to understand and it's controversial. Um, But we really believe in this church that uh, God's word is inspired. It sometimes challenges us, um, and that every segment of Scripture has benefit, has value, adds value to our lives. And so we believe this passage is there for reason and will add value to our lives. And it may not necessarily connect with what you're going through today, but, um, but it has something to say to us. And we want to explore that this morning. Um, now, as I said, it's a very confusing section. We're going to read it together. You'll see that. Um, it's a, uh, uh, a passage that uh, once you read it and do understand it, You might not like it. (laughs) You might feel angry. Um, I'm tempted to skip it for that reason, but I would be doing you a disservice in that. Um, Now, it is true that I won't be speaking the next three weeks, and part of that, I will be on vacation. So I am conveniently out of the line of fire for a while. (laughs) But seriously, I know that some of you I've talked with you about this, have different views on this, as does the corporate body of Christ. And I want you to know that this is not, for Linworth, a show-you-to-the-door deal if you think or believe differently. Our unity, our identity centers on the person of Christ. We are always happy to sit down with you and listen to your perspective. And when we respect one another, even though we believe differently, we have the opportunity to show the world The nature of our love and the nature of being committed to first things. Now on top of the differences inside the body of Christ, to modern sensibilities, the position that Paul takes here will appear, at least on the surface, hopelessly outdated and regressive. So we'll need to answer some objections raised by our non-Christian friends as well. So that's why they pay me the big bucks around here. Just, just stand with me, or stand. I'm standing as well, so stand with me. <laughs> and I'm going to read uh, from chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, if you want to follow along. In the Pew Bible, it's page 958, or it's on the screen behind me as well. Paul writes this, Now I commend you because you remember me and everything, and to maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair Or shave her head, let her cover her head. For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her, her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, all clear? (laughs) Okay, this is God's word and I think we should pray. (laughs) Father in heaven, um, we love you. Uh, Your word is important to us. Let it speak to us. Let us hear it. Let it change us. Um, Inspire us this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit speaking to our spirit. Let our hearts be humble and open, both to one another as well as to those outside this room. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can you be seated? All right. What we're going to do this morning is I'm going to roll through this a little bit on a verse-by-verse basis, try to unpack and try to clarify what's very confusing One thing that will help us before looking at the first few verses is to understand some of these social dynamics that are happening in Corinth at this time. And there's been some recent uh, scholarship that has helped open up a picture of what's actually happening in this church, what's going on. And the reason that this is compelling is that, one, it makes good sense of the passage, And secondly, it accords with what we know from the rest of the book. Three things. Number one, I don't think Paul is addressing Jewish or Greek culture. That's important only in the sense that if he was, it would take us down a different pathway. Number two, Paul is addressing two groups with elite social status. One thing, we'll see this next week, we've seen it elsewhere in the book, there's a sharp division between the rich and the poor within the Corinthian church. And the thought here is that there were likely male believers who were leading the worship, who were flaunting themselves, who were showing off by covering their head. This was a practice done in the Greek-Roman world by pagan religious leaders. It was a way of demonstrating their socially superior status. Also, there were wealthy, elite wives, and we don't know why, but for some reason, they were removing their veil within the service. Now, keep in mind that the veil was not just worn by Christian women. This was a world and a culture where women, married women, were expected to wear a veil, a head covering. Okay, but they too, by taking this off, were somehow distracting or drawing attention to themselves within the worship service. And then, thirdly, I'm gonna I'm gonna press you here a little bit for those of you that have studied this passage. This is something I've be, I I'm have a strong leaning towards. And that, if you if you look at verse ten for a moment, if you look at verse ten, it says that you know, women should wear this veil for angels. I'd like to suggest to you a different new understanding of that verse. The Hebrew word for angels can be interpreted in two different ways. It can be interpreted as an angel, this cosmic divine being, or it can be represented simply by the word messenger. I think it is very feasible that in this this Greek city, culturally influenced by Rome, where oftentimes the, the, the house churches were almost like storefronts, that people could come and observe and visit. And we knew this happened in the pagan world. That is that that masters or uh, people running households would send a servant or a representative to go find out about these religious services and then come back with a message for them. And I think it's very feasible. This is what was going on. Actually, I think it's one of Paul's main concerns is how the worship service is communicating Christ to their neighbors and the community surrounding them. I actually think that's the main point of the passage. Okay? So, anyway, those three, keep those three things in mind as we walk through now the actual verses. Look at verse 3 and 4. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Now, this word head could mean several different things, but we determine the meaning of a word by its context. And here it's quite clear that the word head means authority. Christ over every man, the husband over his wife, and God over all. There is an order here. There is an authority structure that Paul doesn't want to lose in the gathered church. It begins with Christ's relationship to us. And did you notice where he goes? The pattern of the husband-wife relationship is based on the relationship of God the Son to God the Father. Now what happens here is subtle but powerful. Notice that Paul does not dismantle the husband-wife relationship and the authority that the husband has in that relationship. Paul does not repudiate it. But he is radically transforming it. He is transforming that sense of authority from what it meant in that world. That authority in that world meant to a husband that his wife and his children were his property. And Paul is going to radically transform that notion while still keeping intact the idea that the husband is the head of the home. Okay? So that leads us now to our next really important question. How does Paul do that? How does Paul transform this concept of authority in the husband-wife relationship? Three things. Number one, he connects a husband's headship to the headship that Christ expresses. Okay? Christ's headship of man, Christ to man is expressed through his sacrificial service. Christ leads by discovering our needs and meeting them. A head's job is to use authority to please, to meet needs, to serve, to provide leadership and provide direction. That's how Christ leads us. You can look at Romans 15, 2 and 3 are Mark 10, 43 and 45, to see the model that Christ gives to this idea of servant leadership. One who has authority is given the authority for the purpose of serving. The second thing he does is that he connects a wife's submission to Christ. And Christ's submission to the Father. The head of Christ is God. And though Christ is of a higher order of being than us, the Father and Son are equal in power, dignity, and greatness. The Son, here's the main point, the Son is not inferior to the Father at all. Here's what Paul's analogy shows us. Headship does not imply superiority. Headship does not imply greater value. Philippians 2 6 says it tells us the son was equal to the father, but voluntarily took on a submissive role towards him. Okay? And then the third thing, which we'll explain a little more later, again, we're asking the question how does Paul transform the concept of authority? And in verse 11, he does this by showing the shared worth and the interdependence the mutual dependence that men and women have on one another. We'll look at that in a little bit, okay? So in the end here, in the end, what is the thrust of what Paul is saying? What does he mean by this head of a wife is her husband? Well, Tim Keller here helped me to find a way to explain this clearly. I hope it's clear. The first thing is that we have to keep in mind When he says this, he's rejecting the spirit of the age that he lives in. And we might call this traditionalist. The traditionalist view. The traditionalist person comes to Scripture with a prejudice. And the traditional person believes that women are inferior in many ways. Unfit for leadership. Unfit for decision making. And what they assume is that submission... The traditionalist assumes submission means inequality. The sexes, the husband and wife are not, are not equal. Okay? Look at a second view. Paul is also rejecting the what we might call the egalitarian spirit of our own time. And he calls this the feminist view. In the feminist view, they come to the Scripture with the belief that submission can never coexist with equality. Okay? That submission can never coexist with equality. Submission and equality are contradictions. Submission assumes inequality. This is the presupposition, the assumption. And it's interesting to see how the traditionalist and the feminist actually end up at the same at the same place. And into that third way others of keller and others have referred to it as this is the trinitarian understanding of gender for example the mark of christ's greatness not weakness was his voluntary submission to the father god the father in every way sought to support and glorify the son and meet his every need the son freely and voluntarily walked in step with the leadership of the Father. This is a different pattern than the way our world looks at gender, male-female, husband-wife relationships. Paul's understanding is completely different. Paul's maintaining the husband as the head by anchoring it to the character of God and who God is. But he has radically transformed culture's view of authority and of leadership. Now, before we go to verse 5, before we leave this area, because I don't really think this is the main point of the passage. Before we leave verse 5, I do want to clarify a few things. And I'm going to have to breeze through them quickly. But if I don't say them, they may linger in your mind for the rest of the service and detract from the rest of the message. Let me just share a couple of things here. One, men are called to submit to Christ in everything. And nothing inspires a woman more to follow the lead of her husband than to see him following Christ. Two, this way of relating husband as the head, it runs alongside the truth in Scripture that husband and wife are partners. That they are called to mutually serve one another. Both of these truths are taught in Scripture, it's our failure to live with that ambiguity that causes many Christians to abandon one view exclusively for the other. We demand a clarity on the Scriptures that the Scriptures do not yield or give to us. And so one person falls on the authoritarianism side or another falls on the egalitarian side. Three. Three. Most women in the Mediterranean world were married. There were very few single women. Paul is not speaking here of every woman universally. Nor is he speaking of every relationship involving men and women. In my opinion, we Christians have been far too guilty of extrapolating out of this passage and applying it to areas that Paul never intended them to be applied. This headship This headship is is a, um, um, well, let me just make this this final point. What I'm trying to say is he was speaking, speaking here specifically about a wife's relationship with her husband. I'm just getting a little confused up here, okay? But the last point, the last point, I believe. There's a world outside the church, and that world outside the church, there is a quest for equality in the world outside the church. And that quest for equality outside the church is often driven by abuse, and it's driven by injustice. And while headship has implications, I believe, for church leadership, we should not try to take this model that applies to the church and then take it outside the church, apples to apples, into the world of business into the world of education, and into the world of politics. The world deals with the fall in a different way than I believe the church deals and relates with the fall. For example, and I, for some of you, you wonder, well, why in the world did you even have to say that? But there are others that I think this is an important statement to make. For example, I believe, and I would have no trouble of voting for a woman president. I would have no trouble at all doing that. Or... If I were in the marketplace, I'd have no trouble submitting to a woman's supervisor out in the marketplace. I do not think the headship relating to husband and wife goes in apples to apples comparison to the outside world. Okay, with all that said, again, let's move forward now into the next passage of this scripture because we've got to get to where I think Paul is really driving at. Verse 5, look at verse 5 with me. You all right? We're doing all right. I'm giving you a lot to think about, aren't I? Yeah. You can always go back. You know, you can always go back and um, uh oh, you could. You can always go back and listen to the podcast and uh, and try to work through some of these things there as well. Okay, look at verse five. What's all this dishonoring her head mean? Look at first of what it says. We have to note this. It says, every wife who prays or prophesies. We should note that women had a very public role in gathered worship. This was a definitive break from Jewish tradition. Prophesying will be defined through the next several chapters. This is not prophecy meaning forecasting the future, but it means speaking God's word to instruct, to encourage, or to comfort women were free to exercise this gift. And Paul is not trying to limit that public ministry. But he does want to shape it in light of the overall mission. So what does it mean to dishonor her head? Again, remember Corinth was a Roman colony and it reflected Roman culture. Roman women were marriageable in their early teens. If you're 13, 14, 15 here, you were likely married by that point. The veil was a cultural aspect of the marriage service. It was expected to be worn outside the home by Roman women. Its absence would be seen as a shamed woman or a prostitute or a dominant lesbian partner or even a new woman, which was a social movement afoot in Rome at that time. That new woman was known negatively for her sexual indulgence, adultery, and rebellion from customary norms. So Paul was not wanting the women in this church, for whatever reason, they were removing their veils to be connected and associated with what was happening in the broader culture. A woman uh, going this route in the worship service could have publicly shamed her husband, it could have given the impression, a, a, a bad impression about the church to visitors and in that community. And Paul is addressing here a theme that we see all throughout the book. For men and women alike to give up their rights, so to speak, or where they were in excess to their newfound freedoms, to give these things up for the greater good, the greater sake, the growth of the church and the gospel itself. They were dividing themselves along the lines of rich and poor. They had all these internal issues. And again, a lot of it was because they were insisting on, demanding on these certain rights and preferences. Okay? Look at the next verse, verse 6. What did the head covering... What did it mean? And also, what is this... What's this about cutting her hair short and disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair? Well... We've already answered that. Paul's not simply giving fashion advice here. Okay, um, I, I, you know, my wife and I have those interactions once in a while about her hair. She wants to know what I think, and I'll tell her. I have trouble telling her. Paul's not giving fashion advice here, but it's different from our world today. In our world, it's not shameful for a woman to have short hair. Okay, but it was in Paul's day, in Paul's culture, short. Hair for a woman represented rebellion, and people considered it shameful. F.F. Bruce, a really well-noted scholar, said that except for temple prostitutes and high-class mistresses of wealthy Corinthian women, women tended to wear their hair long. And out in public, they wore a a scarf or a shawl-like covering. Mistresses or temple prostitutes might shave their head without any covering at all. You know, across all cultures, Jewish, Roman, and Greek cultures, across all those cultures, the woman wearing a veil was a sign of sexual purity. It'd be a little bit like, uh, it'd be a little bit like the wedding bands that men or women wear today. That veil also symbolized for a woman her loyalty to her husband. It was saying, I'm taken. I'm loyal to my husband. And I respect in those ceremonies, and those services, it was a sign of respect of his leadership in that culture. So for a Christian woman to appear in public without that covering, and then let alone to take, act, take action in a public service, worship service, from Paul's perspective was culturally offensive, and would also then misrepresent who Christ was as people came into that community. There might be distraction or confusion. It could dishonor the husband in his role as spiritual leader or could even undermine the spiritual authority of the elders. Last point on verse 6. We should also note that Paul is not advocating the public shaming of women. He simply is repeating the cultural consequences of going that route. Okay, verse 7. Let's keep going. Here's another question. I'm sure it was confusing to you when I read it. Why is the man singled out as the image bearer and glory of God? What what is Paul driving at? What is he getting at here? Is Paul suggesting that women are not also created in the image of God? I don't think so. Because to do so would contradict Genesis at the story of creation where it says God created Male and female in his likeness, in his image. But Paul has the creation story in mind here. And he's going back to paradise in order to look at and see the original blueprint for what God had intended. And he's speaking here of an order of creation. What does that have to do with anything? Well, again, in the ancient world, the order was very important. For example, the oldest son, the firstborn son in the Jewish world, and much of the culture, much of the ancient world, that oldest son had certain privileges, but with that had certain responsibilities. And so this order in Genesis suggests roughly a chain of command. For the woman, she is the glory of man. And that is stated not related to her creation by God, but in her relationship to the man. The creation story tells us she was created as his unique companion and helper. Coming alongside of him so she could support him. So she could help him manage the garden and all of paradise. Remember, God Patterns the husband and wife relationship in the model of the Trinity. And the woman is called to come alongside and help. Now, if we are tempted to relegate this to an inferior role, then we expose our modern biases. We should be reminded that Jesus called the Holy Spirit the helper. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes the power of Christ effective in our lives. The strength of the woman helps make the man who he is. Helper does not indicate weakness, but it indicates complementary strength. One author said that when husbands and wives give themselves themselves to God's plan in marriage, they discover real masculinity is full of tenderness and real femininity is also full of strength. Submission to God's pattern gradually gets you back in touch with these deep truths and you begin to discover your true self. Now there's a lot of conversation here in these verses about shame and honor. We have to remember here that Paul is speaking through the Holy Spirit and Paul is speaking here, to a culture that is a shame and honor culture, much, very much unlike ours. In a shame and honor culture, family members protected the honor of the family name. And it was a big no-no to dishonor the family name. By being unveiled in this culture, a woman was, was bringing shame to herself and her reputation as well as to her husband and to her children. And Paul wants to avoid this both for the family as well as for the church. Look now at verse 11. Verse 11. Verse 11, Paul brings here a message unknown to the ancient world. Again, we have to remember the world Paul is living in. He's living in a world where um, women uh, were you know, 15th class citizens. And he's speaking something here that was novel to the ancient world. Suggesting that the genders are inter. Dependent, And so Paul has spoken here quite boldly, quite plainly, that uh, the, the husband was created, the man was created first, and so there's a sense of a lead, of an initiative, again, a roughly a chain of command. But to balance this truth, that the man might not look with contempt upon his, 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 his wife, the husband to the wife, Paul reminds them that both genders are interdependent. In the Lord, as things are redeemed, there ought to be humility because man's very existence depends upon a woman. Again, Paul could never have drawn this teaching from the ancient world where male domination was the exclusive rule of the day. Okay, now look down at verse 13 through 15. Finding this last crazy question. And let's see, how did I... Josh, through that next slide up there. How did I... Yeah. What does hair length have to do with this? <laughs> How does hair length get into this conversation at all? Well, let me share just, again, a couple of things. I'm sure it raised questions. Is long hair a disgrace for a man? Does the Bible mandate long hair for women? What does this mean? Well, the first thing, the pivotal thing here to do is to define the word nature. And I do not believe that what Paul means here is mother nature or in the natural world, There's nothing in the creation mandate, for example, that comments about hair length. Different cultures, even at this time, had differing customs and standards about what was masculine and what was feminine. Hair length was one such feature. Hair length was a feature in Corinth that helped define what was masculine and helped define what was feminine. By nature, Paul meant how this culture felt about what was natural. Well, three things that were natural for them. Number one, as we've said, married women should be veiled in public or in worship acts. That was a culturally defined standard. Secondly, young men in Corinth cut their long hair at the transition to manhood. Okay, so you're growing up, your hair's long in this world, and as you make that transition to manhood at age 10, you got it cut. In this world, to keep their hair long was a sign of sexual ambiguity are hinted at moral perversion. And then thirdly, women with short hair, as we said, are identified as either publicly shamed or as a prostitute. So Paul wants to fit in there. Paul wants them to be sensitive to these existing cultural dynamics and realities. If there's any point for us here to take from this is that the church, one, should be sensitive to its culture, but secondly, we also have to balance that sensitivity with the reality that Scripture calls us to not blur distinctions between men and women. And that's a little thread we can't build completely today, but there is a thread through the Scriptures that call the church, when it meets, to not blur distinctions between men and between women in dress, in disposition, and in Lots of things. So that's one for sure takeaway that would apply to us today in our culture. I so appreciate. Verse 16, Paul says, This is essentially my teaching in all the churches, and he calls on the Corinthians to stop being contentious about these things. I love what Paul does here. Paul pieces, he, he, he weaves together the gospel inside the cultural dynamics of Roman, of of Roman Corinth, that do not compromise the gospel, but also seeks to alleviate any unnecessary offenses to the gospel. There would be ways the gospel will offend, but Paul did not want there to be unnecessary offenses to the gospel, and some of their behavior by men and women were doing exactly that. And I think that's really his main concern here. Paul, this means for the Corinthians that they're going to have to reshape their values of elitism and social status. It means they're going to reshape, they have to reshape their attitudes towards the poor. And it would also mean laying down their rights and not misapplying their newfound freedoms in Christ. Okay, just my remaining minutes here. Let me just draw out now just a few applications. What does this all mean for us? And you know, the obvious question is, well, does this, you know, What does this mean in terms of wearing a head covering today? Well, I think the answer should be, have been quite clear to you as we unfolded this. It's not necessary because when women today go into the street without a head covering, it's not saying anything about her relationship to her husband. It's not a culturally practiced idea. Again, there's a few uh, uh, religious sects within our culture that do practice head coverings, but for the majority, it's not a practice. To not wear one doesn't say anything about your relationship with your husband. So I don't think there's any direct commands from this passage that we can apply today. However, I do think there are some significant parallels. I've already mentioned a few. I think there's some significant parallels that we can draw from this. And let me just spend a few minutes here drawing out some of these parallels Let me speak first to husbands. Again, going back to this idea of headship. Something is powerful here about a husband. There's something still powerful about a husband who provides servant leadership, who seeks to discover his wife's needs and meets them, who seeks to be the spiritual leader in their home, is willing to be the tiebreaker when there's an impasse, When he asks his bride to join him in a lifelong venture to build something very special. When he values her partnership and appreciates her as a co-worker in cultivating their garden. When she truly is his chief counselor and he leans into it deeply. When he calls out her gifts and strengths and becomes secure enough to see her fly very high. There's still something very powerful about that. And there remains something powerful about the woman who discerns the love language of her husband and taps into what makes him feel significant, what makes him feel respected and brings her strengths to compliment him, is willing to allow him to be the tiebreaker when there's an impasse, who understands his insecurities. Ah, this is powerful. When a woman understands the insecurities of her husband and learns how to unleash that buried power. That's still powerful stuff. And rather than competing for him for the leadership role of the family, finds a way to empower him. Now I know that, again, to our progressive mindset, some of this sounds regressive, but we must implicitly trust the Scriptures. We must not read them. We must let them read us. And what God is saying is that when we follow His pattern for marriage, it adorns the Gospel. And it makes marriage compelling. And it keeps the idea of a lifelong covenant to one person alive and well and breathing. Here's a related application. I've already hinted at it. Something for husbands and wives to think about. I mean, that was something for husbands and wives, a related application. Paul was concerned that the church embraced the beauty of diversity. The beauty of diversity between men and women. You know, we lose something today in our quest for sameness. I, I don't have time to draw this out. It would be probably a message of its own. But there is a collectivism working in our country, and our culture, that wants to eliminate differences in everything. Suggesting that equality is the same thing as removing every possible disparity from people. And I, I, again, I can't go into why I believe we're at that place, but we are. We often confuse equality with sameness and fairness I think the admonition that Paul might give today to us is let the church be a place where diversity can thrive. And ironically, diversity begins with accepting who I am, with self-acceptance, the way that God has made me. When I embrace who God has made me, when I accept that I am wonderfully and uniquely designed, No matter my gender, no matter my intellect, no matter how tall or short I am, no matter how beautiful or not beautiful I am, you know, when I accept that, that is the foundation to embrace diversity and to run off this quest for sameness. The Bible is not the enemy of diversity. Rather, the enemy, here's the enemy of diversity. The enemy of diversity, enemy of diversity is an all-encroaching, all-encroaching, powerful, it's everywhere, a popular culture. And that popular culture has unbending, <laughs> unbending, and very harsh definitions of who's in and who's out. If you want to find the culprit for sameness, there it is. If you want to find the enemy to diversity, There it is. But let the church be a place where individuals and diversity thrives. In our culture, there's great momentum to to blur the distinctions between the genders. The church ought to be a place where men and women live out and fully understand who they are in their masculinity, in their femininity, and embrace that and flourish under God's plan in that way. To close, I want to ask you a question. Are you ashamed of what the Bible teaches in this area? Are you ashamed of it? Were you ashamed of what I read this morning? Don't be. Don't be. There is a beauty and diversity in what God teaches that turns upside down the objections assigned to Society has traditionally gave men the authority to rule over their spouses for their own pleasure. And unfortunately it took the church too long of a time to correct that one. But the Bible's headship authority is quite different as we have seen. And because of what headship is, many men would gladly give up their responsibility to their wives. Many men do. They don't like the heavy responsibility for service and self-denial that headship brings. Many men, frankly, and I've I put myself many times in this place, many of us are simply terrified to lead. We're terrified to lead. We have to call out to God. Only God can make us adequate to lead as we should. On the other hand, many wise would gladly take the authority themselves. Why? Because they have seen how men have abused it, as Genesis 3.16 predicted. Many women are terrified to follow. Both men and women must struggle by His grace to submit to God's call. It is a tremendous challenge. But here's the question. Can God be trusted with the gender He has given you? Can God be trusted with the role that He has given you? Can you thank God for how he made you in all of your weaknesses and abilities in your intellect or lack of your beauty or lack of your tall or short In the middle of all of that can you thank God for who you are and trust him for how he made you and designed you because all of us have limits even way beyond gender don't we Limits and gifts limits and in intellect We all work with limits, but can we trust God that He's wise and sovereign? Can we accept ourselves based on God's word to us that you are uniquely and wonderfully created? This is what Jesus did. Jesus accepted His limitations. He accepted His role when He he gave Himself as a substitute for our sin. He accepted His role, His limitation. All of this is part of the pathway to becoming fully alive, fully mature, and fully on mission. For some, this self-acceptance will be a big piece to your pathway of healing, reconciliation, and forgiveness. And for some of you even, this self-acceptance will help address and bring healing to your unspoken disappointments with God. I think Paul's big point in all of this is that our conduct when the church gathers is important. Our conduct, the way we dress and the way we treat ourselves and the way we respect these various roles, our conduct when the gathered church comes together reflects the character of divine love. It's important. The mutual dependence that husband and wife have with each other should characterize our entire body. We all need one another. Each is valued. Each has a strength to contribute. And when we model that in our marriages and in our friendships and in the life of the church, then we will show the world how life was meant to be from the beginning. We will, in a sense, even in a fallen world, recapture a piece of a garden and recapture a piece of paradise. And that will lead to a furthering of the reign of Jesus Christ And will help us participate with Him in saving our world. Will you pray with me? Father, thank You for these few moments that we could spend together this morning. Thinking, digesting, processing Your Word to us today. And now, Father, uh, as we move towards this final segment of worship, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to speak, allowing us to share what our fears and our longings and our heartaches, our disappointments, our struggles are. That we might be able, Father, here to, in a sense, do business with you or even with one another. Father, there may be husbands here this morning that need to repent before their wives for their their passivity, for their relinquishing of self-denial and servant leadership. There may be wives here, Father, that need to repent to their husbands for, for, for demanding and insisting a role and a place that, God, You did not give to them. Father, other, others of us may need to repent for the way that we've struggled and wrestled and been so um, ungrateful for the limitations You've placed upon our bodies our minds help us father individually and collectively to give thanks to you for how you made us man woman whoever we are big small God help us to believe that you said we are wonderfully and uniquely created and designed help us to accept and bring a healing of self-acceptance to us wherever we are whoever we are Lord, may this next segment bring continued grace and healing as we sing, pray, and offer to you our resources. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening and joining our mission. For more content or to learn more about us, visit winworthroadchurch.com.